What's it like to study at an ultra-Orthodox Jewish school? What happens to British children who leave school without knowing basic English or maths? And who should decide how children should be educated, their parents or the state? You're listening to the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Eve Sachs about the unregistered schools that serve London's community of ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews. Eve is an accountant by profession and an activist with Nahamu, an organisation that provides support to Jewish people in the UK whose civil liberties have been impinged upon by religious hardliners. The Hasidic community is known to be closed and secretive, but Eve has spent years working with its members to find out more about their way of life and the pressures which keep them isolated from the rest of British society. I will be talking to her about who is behind these unregistered schools, what a day in one of their classes is like, and their effect on the children who attend them. We will also be discussing why it is difficult to monitor them, how to balance the rights of parents and children, and possible solutions for getting children back into registered schools where they can receive a more mainstream education. Finally, I'll be joined by Alistair Lichten to consider the NSS's perspective on these issues. Eve Sachs, what is the uh, nature of these illegal schools and who goes to them? Right, so first of all, so the, the illegal schools in the UK are mainly in Hackney and Haringey. Um, they are mainly, although not exclusively, for children over the age of 13. And they are almost exclusively for boys. So other than, a, a, you know, a, really one or two exceptions in, let's say, Manchester, um, they're in northeast London and they're for boys over 13. Um, and they... Um, they serve the Hasidic community. So the Hasidic community is part of the Haredi community, but it's a sort of sub part and it's probably the part that's a, a, the most extreme or the sort of furthest away from the mainstream Jewish community in terms of the most insular part of the community. Uh, now, could you just explain for our listeners where exactly do you fall within the sort of the Jewish community spectrum? Right, so um, I'm a member of um, an Orthodox synagogue, like the United Synagogue, which is the sort of main mainstream Orthodox synagogue bodies. I've got my children at um, state faith schools, which are all schools which have, you know, good standards, good offsteads. And the secondary schools have got good secular results. My children will hopefully go to university with their GCSEs and A-levels that they get. Um, so I would describe myself as a traditional Orthodox Jew. And and how does your sort of area of the community, say, relate to the Hasidic community or, or what's the Hasidic community like? Well, I think, first of all, it's far away geographically. So um, I live in northwest London and that community is mainly in northeast London. So I think a lot of the time it's out of sight and out of mind. Um, so, I mean, obviously, people in the mainstream part of the community are aware that the ultra-Orthodox part of the community exists, but a lot of them would never have met somebody from that part of the community. They, they would, just like anybody in the wider community, they'd read about it in the press or they might be curious or interested. They might have a distant relation, perhaps, but it's not well integrated. In fact, it's completely separate. And the mainstream part of the community really is very well integrated, you know, in terms of most people in the mainstream part of the community work in regular offices of friends beyond the Jewish community. So what goes on in the Hasidic community in, in these schools and, and how did you go about finding out about it? 
Right. So I started um, being interested in this probably almost 10 years ago when I started to meet people who had been through these schools and I started listening to what they felt um, their experiences were and how that impacted them after they left the community. Um, and then as time goes on, I've spoken to people who are still within the community, but their children are at these schools. So I've you know, tried to get a wider view in terms of what goes on there. The, the, these are, we call them schools, but they actually don't fit into the government's definition of schools, which is part of the problem, because that's why Ofsted can inspect them. And the reason for that is they're not really schools, as in they, there's no um, secular education. There's nothing there's, there's nothing that would look like a school in terms of these are boys aged 13 to 16 or 13 to 18 who are sitting in pairs and learning all day, um, often with study partners and some lectures. But all the things that you'd expect in a school, you know, maths, English, science, assemblies, PE, um, that sort of thing is all missing. What what do they learn? They learn mainly, they learn Talmud and they, they might also learn um, Torah, which is the five books of Moses, Pentateuch, but more likely to be Talmud um, than to be um, anything else. What language are they taught in? So... The languages is an interesting. There's basically three different languages on the go. Um, and you'll be surprised or not surprised to hear none of them is English. So the language they speak in is Yiddish, which is a sort of German Hebrew dialect. Um, it's actually a very limited language, not really used for writing. Um, and the vocabulary is actually quite limited. But that would be the language they would talk to each other in chat in the language they might speak at home. They would rarely See, it would rarely be written. You might see posters written Yiddish, but it's not really a language you'd sit and write an essay about yourself in. So that's the sort of vernacular. The next language would be Biblical Hebrew. So that's the original language of um, the, the Bible or what wider community might call the, the Old Testament. Biblical Hebrew, again, not really a spoken language and it's considered very holy. So um, people wouldn't speak that. That's more for like reading sacred texts, but they would certainly understand that. Is, is there any um, anything you can read or do with Biblical Hebrew apart from read religious texts? No, although, I mean, I think if you were if you really understood Biblical Hebrew very well and you went to Israel, you would probably be able to converse with people. Just like if you like, learn ancient old English, you might be able to come to modern day Britain and just about get by. But oh, that no, might not be a bit really. difficult. <laughs> it might be a bit difficult. But I mean, but modern Hebrew was based on biblical Hebrew. So it's not, um, you know, there, there are lots of words in common. So the third language is Aramaic, and that's the language of the um, Talmud. So in the Talmud, the way that the Talmud works is it starts off with something called a Mishnah, which is written in biblical Hebrew or um, Mishnaic Hebrew, which is similar. Um, and then the, there'll be a sort of that will be written there. And then underneath there'll be a whole big commentary in Aramaic. So the boys will discuss it and they'll probably be discussing it in Yiddish. So they'll be the three languages on the go. What is interesting to understand about these languages is often the boys that they'll be able to um, speak Yiddish and they'll be able to understand um, the biblical Hebrew and Aramaic, but they might not actually be able to express themselves as in right in any of the languages because the schools just don't focus on that. That's just not something that's seen as being important. So they don't have to write essays? No. 
What, what, so they, are they literally, what are they doing? Just reading text? So basically, one of the difficulties with Talmud, and it's actually quite interesting if you, if you try and learn it, is um, it's quite difficult to follow the arguments. You couldn't just sort of read it. And if you sort of read it, it just doesn't really make any sense. So you basically, they work in pairs called chavrutas, and they discuss it with each other, trying to sort of get in the minds of what the people who wrote the Talmud understood. So they'll go backwards and forwards and trying to sort of explain it. And then they'll probably have a lecture which will clarify what the thinking of the rabbis is and then they'll move on to the next thing so a large part of the day will be around you know going through the, the, the talmudic arguments and understanding them so basically then they're, they're not learning anything to do with modern life at all no um, and why, why is it just boys oh well um so basically the Talmud itself says that um, if a girl would, was to learn Torah, it would just be, um, I think the word uses licentiousness, like a nonsense. So um, they just don't believe, they believe that um, boys are commanded to um, use their time to study um, the important sacred texts, but that's not important for girls. So what, what are the girls at this age um, in this community doing? So the girls are generally at registered schools, generally independent registered schools, and they... Um, learn they work towards not a levels probably because that would give them too many options later on but they work towards gcses in a limited range of subjects so i sort of laugh at this because actually the state's haredi schools are basically forced by the government to teach them maths english science you know sort of evac type subjects but obviously independent schools the the standards are much laxer so they'll choose there's much less need to redact because they'll definitely choose the GCSEs and even IGCSEs that are the least problematic. So, for example, maths would be a good one or English language rather than English literature would be a good one. Apparently, from the sciences, chemistry is the best because there's no um, reproduction or evolution or big bangs in chemistry. Um, art is another one they might, girls might study. So, so basically, the, the parents who send their boys and girls to these schools, um, the boys to the um, Haredi-specific religious schools and the girls to the limited independent schools, what, is, what, is, what do the parents want out of this? Right, so I can't get in the mindset of every single parent. So all as I can do is um, ask people what the feeling is and also speak to the people who are unhappy because generally it's the people who are unhappy who are prepared to talk to me. And what's your impression? So my impression is there are some parents who are completely on board with this and they want their children to have a religious life and the boys to be Torah scholars and the girls to be good wives and mothers and um, they're educating the way that they always have and they're very happy with that. And there's certainly a reasonably large percentage of the community who would fall within that mindset. Uh, what about the ones who are unhappy? Right, so I think you can probably split them into different categories. There's some who are probably very unhappy and they just wish they could send their children to the sort of schools that my children are at. Well, why do they feel they can't? Oh, right. So, okay, so I'll go to cover the middle category first, which is yeah, the people sure. who um, are just moderately unhappy and would prefer that the schools are basically um, Hasidic, but with better education. And then, so then, so there's the category of people who are very unhappy and wish they could send their children to um, Orthodox Jewish state schools where they would get a really good education. Um, because there, there would be um, a stigma, there would be shunning, it would just life would be made, made very uncomfortable. So I've spoken to people who have moved out of northeast London because they wanted to send their children to Orthodox single gender um, state faith schools, you know, and that might seem 
you might not like that from a sort of secularist point of view for them that was a massive jump and these are schools with really good secular education where their children would have options in life but you know if you're then excluded from your synagogue and none of your relations talk to you and then everybody gossips about you and you're in the street and it's you know that that would be very uncomfortable um, so, and you might not want to stay there anymore. So the communities, in a way, are, are doing the policing of, of individual parents and their children. Yeah, so we've seen that. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, um, that came to light that one of the schools, it was actually a, it was a registered boys' primary school, was saying that women aren't allowed to drive. Right. So, I mean, the, the whole, the whole, there was a whole stink, and it went up to the Secretary of State for Education at that time was Nikki Morgan. And, of course, like she said, well, obviously, you know, a school can't do that. But, of course, it's still happening because all that happens is they're just slightly more careful now. They don't put it in writing. But everybody knows that's still the rules. So how far is the, the Hasidic community um, isolated from, from the rest of say, London and, and even the wider Jewish community? How far right, so the way that it's been described to me by people who have left and have managed to leave, and it is difficult to leave, and the numbers leaving are relatively small, is that it's like being an immigrant, even though it's the country you've been brought up in. Because imagine if you've never had any access to culture or just to what it's, you know, you've never seen TV, you've never um, spoken to people outside your community, you've not been to school in the normal sense and learnt the curriculum you just don't know how to talk to people. You don't know how to form relationships. You know, it's just very difficult. So it's just a completely world within a world in northeast London. Sure. So it's it's hard for them to leave. And I mean, talking about the difficulty of leaving, what is the effect on these boys of going to these religious schools? So I think you can look at sort of the effect in two different ways. So the first um, effect is what I've sort of mentioned already. So things like not having GCSEs, not having A-levels, not being able to function, feeling like an immigrant, um, not having literacy or numeracy. So being 18. So somebody said, you know, what's it like to be 18 and go to the dentist and realise you can't explain that you've got a pain in your tooth, for example. Is, so, it, is it that bad? <laughs> yeah, it can be that bad. Mm. I mean, oh, look, obviously different families are different. Some families will speak a little bit of English at home, some won't. I mean, you can't say it's that bad for every single person because that you know that would be stretching it. But in some cases, yes, it's like that. Um, so the, there's this sort of what I would call like the practical problems, you know, like that. And then there's all the sort of emotional type issues. So I don't know um, if you've been following independent inquiry into child sex abuse. So interestingly, Amanda Spielman, who was um, interviewed this week, um, she brought a document which was about corporal punishment and yeah. about how that's used basically to discipline the children and basically to humiliate them to behave and be submissive. So you've got to sort of, look, the other thing to look at is what would be the impact of being a boy in that school um, sitting for, let's say, 12 hours a day, five and a half days a week and um, studying these texts. And you've got to think as well, you know, one size fits all in these schools. Now we know from modern educational methods that one size doesn't fit all, that some children are just less academic and are less able to sit and study for hours on end. But, you know, that's the path that everybody's pushed into. And imagine, you know, how that will, you know, what the emotional impact will be by, you know, imagine you've got borderline ADHD or any, anything else of having to sit still and lack movement and be hit or disciplined if you can't do that. Which, which is effectively child abuse. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, some people will fare better than others. There'll be, you know, the very academic model child who has no problem behaving and will never be disciplined and get understands everything very quickly and, you know, 
but you know he'll be the, the top of the class and he's much lesser to much less likely to feel that it was child abuse than somebody with a different profile but i mean if if they're actually undergoing corporal punishment is what i meant yeah but the corporal punishment would be the one would be happening to the ones who are not behaving sure so i think it's awful but you know it, it's probably not going to be for every single boy you mentioned that Ofsted can't inspect them. What, what's the legal loophole that's being exploited here? Right, so offhand, and my understanding is that when you look at what the definition of a school is, it comes down to a school, something for, suitable for a child of school age. Um, but these are not because they don't provide any secular education. What's interesting, actually, is I've emailed the DfE a few times because um, I'm not sure if you're aware, the, um, there's been quite a few primary schools which have been shut down recently. Yeah. Yep. So what's happened is in their places, in their place, um, in unregistered schools have popped up. So I've tried to email the DFE to say I've heard of this school, I've heard of this school. But actually, generally in the registered primary schools, even though the education was dire, they were providing a little bit of secular education each day, like reluctantly, I guess. But once they turn into an unregistered school, the loophole is that there's no secular education because once you provide any secular education, you fall foul of the loophole. Isn't it the case, though, that these schools are effectively, in, in practice, stopping boys from going to proper secular schools, which they should be doing? No, I, I think that's not the right way of looking at it. I think when these families, even the ones who are the most open-minded, would never, ever send their child to a regular secular school under any circumstances. Yes, there will be a certain percentage who would be happy to send to a orthodox single gender state school like the ones I've mentioned. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I meant was, um, so, I mean, if these children aren't, aren't getting a secular education at, at the school, they aren't getting any sort of formal education. at, at Right, exactly. So, basically, so this is a pro where the legislation falls yeah. down. So obviously, yeah. child under 16 has to receive an education. So and, and he's not receiving any at all, right? If they're not receiving at all, the onus falls on the parents to homeschool them. Yeah. But um, the, the legislation on that's been woefully inadequate as well. There has been a consultation, but you... What's happening with that is if anybody, so we actually heard of somebody who um, was interviewed by Hackney, or I think it was Harringay after, and the, the Harringay suspected their child had been in an unregistered school, and the mother was able to spin together a whole yarn about how she was homeschooling him, teaching him business studies, and this is a boy who just doesn't speak any English, but because they did interview the child, and the mother's the mother was completely fluent in English. Um, she was able to um, cover for him, cover for the rabbis, cover for everybody. So it's very difficult um, for, for Ofsted to, to find, um, to sort of deal with this situation. What do you think is the solution um, to these um, unregistered schools or to, to, to these children? Right, so well, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to change the legislation to shut down the unregistered schools. And there's going to be a lot, it's going to be very difficult to do this. You're going to, you know, have... Um, a lot of people, as I said before, a lot of the people are bought into the whole narrative and are really going to be very upset and almost see it as a sort of anti-Semitic act, perhaps. And the police and Ofsted and the DfE or whoever it is will have to be very firm and just shut down, shut down the unregistered schools. The question therein is, what do you do with the children? So as far as I can see, there's basically two options. Either you can get the, well, I guess three options. Either you can get them into um, independent registered schools, um, or you can set up um, state-funded um, faith schools for them. 
because really the last thing you want is them being educated at home because then the odds of them becoming literate and numerate are very low sure. and that will have a knock-on impact for their whole life. So basically some sort of compromise where they are at a registered school but it is sort of more towards some somewhere closer on the other. Well I mean I, I think yeah. unless they're chance to get seven or eight GCSEs and three A-levels, then, you know, they're being let down by everybody, by the government, you know, by society. Because if they can't go on to further education and pursue whatever career they would be interested in pursuing, they've not the same opportunities as every other child in this country. So, you know, the, the question then is, okay, whether it's preferable for it to be an independent school or a state school, you can make arguments, you know, f for either my personal view is I prefer state schools because generally, these people often they don't see a volume secular education so they won't put the funding in to make sure the children get it of a very high quality whereas a state school you know the government's paying for the secular education and then the children will actually come out with them good skills that will help them going through their lives but either way they have to be in proper schools where they're getting proper education yes um absolutely now you mentioned this this um sort of potential um, argument that they might make that it's it's anti-semitic or that you know parents have a right to educate um their children according to their philosophy or, or beliefs how far do you think that argument goes or what's what's the response to that well i don't think there's any argument about the government being anti-semitic here because i think that if you once you start going down that line you sort of end up in a bigotry of low expectations that you're letting these children achieve less in terms of their secular education than any other child in the country. And that's almost, is that not anti-Semitic in itself that everybody's entitled to get eight GCSEs unless you're a Haredi Jew? Yeah. Um, so um, I've quite limited sympathy for the anti-Semitism argument. Um, I, I suppose I'm an Orthodox Jew myself. I mean, I, I, I have like a tiny bit of um, sympathy for when you start going down the lines of when there's things that they don't want their children to know. So, for example, if I was um, saying like, what sort of compromises do I think might be possible, I'd much rather the, they come out with three A-levels, which are in, let's just say, economics, computer science and maths, which are non-problematic subjects, then you force them to study biology. Sure. Now, obviously, if you don't study biology, your career options are limited. So that is difficult, but you can still have a reasonably good career with economics, computer science, let's say, math A-levels. So, you know, I think there's... Um, that there might be trade-offs that you that you're prepared to to make perhaps but like ultimately my big concern is that basically children growing up without getting you know skills for employment without getting skills for um careers and without being able to support themselves and um that, that and that having a lifelong impact on them that that's really interesting you've just one very final question which is um in terms of these religious schools, who's behind them? Who are the leaders of the community who are most in favour of these um, religious schools? Oh, that's a very difficult question to answer because, the, the, as I said before, the Haredi community, there's lots of different parts of the Haredi community and um, they would all have different rabbis that they would answer to in their synagogues, perhaps rabbis abroad. Um, so I don't think you can sort of put your finger on any one person and say it's that person who wants it. Um, it's more that people are brought, in the Hasidic community, people are brought up into specific Hasidic sects and that Hasidic sect would have a leader and that Hasidic sect would have girls' school, boys' schools and yeshivas. And, and the, le the leader would be a rabbi? Yeah, but he might not be in the UK. Okay, so it might be in Israel or somewhere else. Or in America, Canada, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Um, well, Eve Sykes, thank you very much. That was um, a really fascinating interview and has given us lots of material for discussion. Thank you. I'm now joined by Alistair Lichten, Head of Education at the National Secular Society, to discuss his response to Eve's points and what the NSS's position is. Um, so Alistair, what's the National Secular Society's position about these unregistered schools and what work is it doing at the moment in this area? Well, thanks, Emma. Um, and uh, th- thanks for Eve for her insight on this issue. So the National Secular Society, our main focus has always been on state funded faith schools and issues within the state funded sector because it's just the biggest area uh, from a secularist perspective, it, it's uh, the most egregious because it's state funded. Though over the last uh, almost 10 years, we've been doing increasing work looking at the independent sector, uh, both the registered, regulated independent sector and the unregistered, potentially unlawful independent sector. Our position is that when a school is independent, it's not funded by the state, then it's pretty clear and fair that it has a lot more freedom and to operate and to promote um, to promote a religious or other ethos but that even within an independent system there are still children's independent rights that have to be protected separate to often the the family and the independent schools rights itself so we've always supported there being better regulation, which is over the last few years begun begun to come in to ensure there is just at least a minimum basic standard within the independent sector. And with the issue of unregistered, uh, often uh, illegal um, faith schools, we uh, because they, that's just completely uh, escaping any regulation, any oversight, we've been one of the leading organisations calling for this issue to be taken seriously, for these uh, schools to be identified and uh, to be brought into line with the law. Well, one, one of the difficulties with, with these unregistered schools is that um, Ofsted doesn't seem to be able to catch them because of, of this this strange um, provision about um, homeschooling. I mean, what, what do you think is the, the answer to that? Yes. So often when a child is attending an unregistered school, parents will say the child is being homeschooled. Um, Parents also often uh, supplement legitimate homeschooling. Uh, So they actually are educating the child at home, but they then supplement that with potentially part time attendance at an unregistered school. It's difficult to tackle this issue because of the lack of definition of what actually a school is. Now, I think we can all look at the dictionary definition and we all sort of know what is meant by a school, but there are settings which provide some form of education which aren't schools. So there can sometimes be a legitimate um, lack of clarity over whether or not an institution should be registered. Not every institution does need to be registered, but if it's operating as a school, then it should be registered. The government has, is thankfully moving towards a position which we've endorsed in our response to the latest consultation on this issue of defining what a school is and what a full-time um, school is. And 
that's going to be based on an idea and we might quibble over the exact definition but based on the idea of if there's an institution which is basically walks like a school quacks like a school then it should be treated as a school it should be registered it should be held accountable and what's the state of that legislation at the moment so the government the department for education is currently consulting on bringing in a proper definition of uh, a school and full-time and full-time settings that consultation i believe has been suspended and that's as a result of the current uh, covid19 crisis but we expect that there will be pro will, will be progress on that and that we will have a better system of registration and that we will continue hopefully the trend of doing a much better job as we as has been done over the last um, several years of holding independent schools accountable to the standards which they are expected to follow uh, hopefully that progress continues but unfortunately as there has been an effort to hold schools accountable the uh, these schools who most rigorously object to these standards have pushed back and you know equally we could see the government begin to weaken their approach and go back to a situation which we had just a few years ago of these issues were going on but they weren't being pointed out by inspectors there was a reluctance to deal with it because it was just sort of like oh put it in the too difficult box sure um but i mean that that's where when these schools are, are acknowledged as schools there's often just a, a, a lack of communication so um you can have a situation where it is known in the community that a certain setting is an unregistered school uh, there may be an organization which is registered with the cha with the charities commission and has the charitable purpose of providing education and therefore that's a way of knowing that they are running unregistered schools where that information isn't filtering through ofsted can have you know a very good idea that, that, that a certain setting is an unregistered school but not be able then to gather the evidence may not be able to get to being inspecting in it uh, i've also i've used the, the phrase settings but that can be unclear so if you've got a an organization operating from multiple addresses potentially moving around potentially um you might have uh, operating at two addresses and operating at one address in the morning and the other in the afternoon and then saying oh no these are two separate things and this one is only four hours here and this one's only four hours there so it's not full time uh, these are complicated areas it, do, it does need resource it does need resources but it fundamentally it needs to ha have a seriousness it, it needs to have the prioritization of tackling uh, these settings because you know at the end of the day it's children's rights it's children's rights to a basic education which are on the line yeah and, and to let us just talk about that briefly because because you mentioned even in independent schools say there is a basic standard of education which children should expect for you what what would be included in that what should all children have to know about regardless of their faith background hmm. well i mean I, I, that can be difficult to define obviously we're not an educational organization so we're, we're not experts on uh the on this sort of detail i'm independent schools should be able to have their own approach it seems reasonable and that approach might be very difficult different to that within within state schools so i don't know for example if they should necessarily having to be teaching certain qualify certain qualifications but the key thing is the broad principle of 
are they receiving an education which gives them opportunities in life or are they receiving an education which is designed just to force them into a, a very narrow role? So it's for you, it's it's about um, opportunities. I mean, that's also something Eve was talking about, the idea that they should be able to participate in civil society um, and, and have jobs, that sort of and, thing. And, and, and the, the standards are built around that idea. For example, there's not a requirement to teach in English. A, an independent school can teach in another language but it has a responsibility to ensure that the children at that school still learn English because otherwise it's it's incredibly marginalizing and alienating experience to 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 grow up in a country and be denied the ability to learn the language which would allow you to interact with people in that country Absolutely. Um, now, also, in, in terms of, of the, these children's rights, so we're saying that it's about their flourishing, but we don't necessarily you know, want, want to name the specifics. But what would the NSS's response be to, to this claim by parents that they, want, they have the right to educate their children the way they want to? Because I think Eve made quite a good point about that. You know, she said um, you know, these, these parents may not necessarily be, be the best thing for their children if, if they, they want to hinder them. Well, uh, this is an, an area where I think we need to do a better job of educating people about um, human rights. So people will often say, I have the right to raise my child how I want. And that's largely true, but that's not an unlimited right. So if we look at the right to education enshrined in the Human Rights Act, that does contain a provision about uh, raising children, uh, having education in, in accordance with your uh, religious or philosophical convictions. But that right is not unlimited. So that right is there to prevent the state indoctrinating your children into a particular religious or non-religious worldview. That is not there to protect your unlimited right, because you don't have an unlimited right to uh, raise your child within a particular narrow worldview. That's not a right to demand uh, schools of a certain uh, religious ethos. Parents, all parents, have the right to raise and inculcate their children within their worldview, whether that is religious or non-religious. But that is not unlimited. That um, The children also have their own independent rights. Now, you might wish to raise your child within a worldview or within a community that is radically different to mainstream society and the law protects your right to do that but it doesn't give you the right to enlist other organizations it doesn't mean that the state cannot require that certain institutions uh, obey certain standards what about um eve's idea that part of the solution to these unregistered schools might be to have state-funded faith schools as a sort of halfway house compromise um, well, so obviously the National Secular Society, you know, one of our most central, longest running important campaigns is against state funded faith schools. Uh, but that's the that's the position we want to get to. We, we want to get to an entirely community ethos uh, state education system. You also have issues, though, about harm reduction. And for a campaigning organization, um, Harm reduction issues can be a bit difficult because uh, how far do you allow your efforts to reduce immediate harm to quell your ambitions for a better 
end end position. Now, I think the thing that has to be said is that Eve's argument there is more of a nuanced argument and deserves potentially more reflection from secularists than the typical just sort of terrible arguments that we hear from many sources for faith schools. I do feel, though, that there's within that a lack of ambition, the sort of acceptance that if a community says, and not not if a community says, but if, if some people in the community say, no, we will not accept this, that you're stuck with that and you can't try and build consensus and you can't ultimately, if there's a lack of consent, if, if you can't uh, build that consensus, still actually take robust action when, when necessary. Um, we, we are always clear that different faith that not all faith schools are the same and uh, not all faith schools are as valid as that and when we talk about some of the terrible practice going on in faith schools we we don't suggest that's happening in every single one if we as we would like to at the national secular society move towards an inclusive community ethos education system and that is the default and that is how all schools operate how you get there is still going to be a process. It's still going to be this stage. What uh, what sort of consensus can we get? The next stage, what sort of consensus can we get? The next stage, there's a lot of opposition at this stage, but how can we over how can we overcome that opposition? There will still be, even if we get rid of discriminatory school admissions and we make all schools community ethos, each school will still have a different makeup of pupils. And because of the way that demographics work in the country, you will still have schools that have a majority or a larger proportion of pupils from certain backgrounds, and that will still influence the culture of the school. But the idea is the moving towards a community ethos system. Alistair Lichton, thank you very much. Thanks so much. That was episode 27 of the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. My guest speakers were Eve Sachs and Alistair Lichton. If you would like to help us challenge unfair religious privilege and support freedom of and from religion in Britain today, why not become a member of the NSS? Full details are on our website at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you like this podcast, you can find more episodes and more information about this episode on the website. Thanks for listening.